it is quite uh, fascinating that when people become really familiar with the technology and search engine is an excellent example of such a technology people really don't think of it as technology people think of it as a fellow human and they try to interact with the technology as they would have done in a natural circumstances with a fellow human welcome to the microsoft research india podcast where we explore cutting edge research that's impacting technology and society I'm your host Sridhar Vedantam. Many of us who speak multiple languages switch seamlessly between them in conversations and even mix multiple languages in one sentence. For us humans, this is something we do naturally, but it's a nightmare for computing systems to understand mixed languages. On this podcast with Kalika Bali and Monojit Chaudhary, we discuss code mixing and the challenges it poses. What makes code mixing so natural to people? some insights into the future of human computer interaction and more Kalika and Monojit uh, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much I know we've had a bit of trouble getting this thing together given the covid-19 situation we are all in different spots so thank you so much for the effort and the time thank you shridhar thank you okay so to kick this off uh, Let me ask this question. How did the two of you get into uh, linguistics? It's a subject that interests me a lot because I just naturally like languages and I find the evolution of languages and anything to do with linguistics quite fascinating. How was it that uh, both of you got into this field? So, mere kahani mein twist hai. So, I was uh, actually in school quite a geeky kind of a kid. and uh, my interests were the usual mathematics science physics and i wanted to be a scientist uh, or an engineer and so on and uh, language i did study so i i know english and hindi which i studied in school bangla is my mother tongue so of course i know and uh, then i also studied sanskrit in uh, great detail and i was interested in the grammar of these languages literature was not something which would pull me but uh, language was still in the back bench right what i really loved was science and mathematics and naturally i ended up in iit i studied in iit kharagpur for 4 years doing computer science and everything was lovely and then one day there was a project when we were in final year where my supervisor was working on what is called a text to speech system so in this system uh, it takes a hindi text and the system would automatically speak it out and there was a slight problem that he was facing uh, and he asked me if i could solve that problem i was in my final year undergrad year at that time and the problem was how to pronounce hindi words correctly at uh, that time it sounded like a very simple uh, you know problem because in hindi the way we write is the way we pronounce unlike english where you know you have to really learn the pronunciations and turns out it isn't like if you think of the words dhadkane and dhadakne you pretty much write, write them in exactly the same way but one you pronounce as dhadkane the other one you pronounce as dhadakne so this was the uh, issue uh, my friend of course who was also working with me uh, was all for machine learning and i was saying no there must be a pattern here and i went through lots and lots of examples myself and turned out that there is this very short simple elegant rule which can explain most of hindi words 
pronunciation of those words perfectly. So I was excited. I went to my professor, showed him the thing. He was saying, oh, this is fantastic. Let's write a paper. And we got a paper and all this was great. But then somebody, when I was presenting the paper, said, hey, you know what the problem you solved? Uh, it's called schwa deletion in Hindi. Of course, I wasn't in linguistics, neither my professor was, so he had no clue what was schwa and what was schwa deletion. I dug a little deeper and found out that people have written entire books on schwa deletion. And actually, what I really found out was uh, in line with what people had done their research on. And this got me really excited about linguistics. And more interestingly, you know, uh, what I saw is uh, like you said, language evolution, if you think of why this is there. So Hindi uses exactly the same style of writing that we use for Sanskrit. But in Sanskrit, there is no schwa deletion. But if you look at all the modern Indian languages which came from Sanskrit, like Hindi, Bengali or Odia, they have different degrees of pronunciation difference from Sanskrit. I'm not getting into the detail of what exactly is schwa deletion, besides the point. But the pronunciations evolve from the original language. And the question I then eventually got interested in is how this happens and why this happens. And then I ended up doing a PhD with the same professor uh, on you know, language evolution and how sound change happens across languages. And of course, being a computer scientist, I tried modeling all these things computationally. And then there was no looking back. I went, you know, more and more deeper into language, linguistics and natural language processing. That's fascinating. And I know for sure that Kalika's got an equally interesting story, right? Kalika, you have an undergrad uh, degree in uh, chemistry? I do. Linguistics doesn't seem very much like a natural career progression from there. Yes, it doesn't. But before I start the story, I have one more interesting thing to say that when Monojit was presenting his Shwa deletion paper, I was in the audience. I was working somewhere else and I looked at my colleague at that time and said, you know, we should get this guy to come and work with us. So I actually was there when he was presenting that particular Shwa deletion paper. So yes, I was a science student. I was studying chemistry. And after chemistry, the thing in my family was that everybody goes for higher studies. I rebelled. I was one of those difficult children that we now are uh, very unhappy about. But I said, I don't want to study anymore. I definitely don't want to do chemistry. And I was going to be a journalist like my dad. I had already um, gotten a job to um, work in a newspaper. And uh, I went to the university, Jawaharlal Nehru University, to pick up a form for my sister, for my younger sister. And I looked at the university and said, ah, this is a nice place. I want to study here. And then I looked at the prospectus and um, kind of flicked through it and said, what is interesting and I looked at this thing called linguistics and it seemed you know very fascinating I, ha I had no idea what linguistics was about and then um, there was also ancient history which I did know what it was about and it seemed interesting so I filled in forms and uh, sat for the entrance exam uh, after having read like a thin uh, layman's guide to linguistics that I'd borrowed from British Council Library and uh, I got through. And the interesting thing is that the linguistic exam, entrance exam was in the morning, the ancient history one was in the afternoon. This was peak summer in Delhi. And there were no fans in the um, 
place where the exam was being held. So after taking the linguistic exam, I was like, I can't sit for another exam in this heat. And I left. So I only took the linguistic exam. I got through. No one was more surprised than I was. And I saw it as a sign that I should be going. So I started a course without having any idea what linguistics was and uh, completely fell in love with the subject within the first months. And uh, coming from a science background, um, you know, I was very naturally attracted towards phonetics, which I think is to really understand phonetics and uh, speech science part of linguistics, you do need to have a lot of understanding of how waves work, the physics of sound, right? So that part came a little naturally to me and I was attracted towards speech and the rest as they say is history. So I went from there. <laughs> basically. Nice. So chemistry's loss is linguistics gain. Yeah, my gain as well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I've heard you and Monojit talk at length and many times about this thing called code mixing. What exactly is code mixing? So code mixing is when people in a multilingual community switch back and forth between two or more languages. And, uh, you know, as we all, all of us here come from multilingual communities where at a community level, not at an individual level, all of us speak more than one language, two, three, four. It's very natural for us to keep switching between these languages in a a normal conversation. So right now, of course, um, you know, we we are sticking to uh, English. But if this was, say, in a different setting, we would probably be uh, switching between uh, Hindi, Uh, Bengali and English, because those are the three languages all three of us understand, right? That's true. That's what code switching is, when we mix languages uh, that we know, when we talk to each other, interact with each other. I guess. And how prevalent is it? We can still switch between languages. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Monojit, were you saying something when I interrupted you? Uh, No, you asked how prevalent it is. Um, So actually, linguists have observed that in all multilingual societies where people know multiple languages at a societal level, they code mix. But there is no quantitative data for how much mixing is there. And one of the first things we tried to do when we started this project was, okay, let's uh, do some measurement and see, you know, how much mixing does really happen. We looked at social media where people usually talk the way they talk in their real life. I mean, they type it, but it's almost like speech. So we studied English-Hindi mixing in India. And some of the interesting things we found is if you look at public forums on Facebook in India, and if you look at sufficiently long threads, let's say 50 or more comments, then all of them are multilingual. You will find at least uh, two comments in two different languages. And sometimes there will be many, many languages, right? Or not only two languages. And interestingly, if you look at each comment and try to measure how many of them are mixed within itself, like a single comment has multiple languages, it's as high as 17%. Then we extended this study to Twitter and now for seven European languages, including English, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, German, um, Turkish. And we studied... Uh, how much code mixing was happening there. Again, interestingly, 3.5% of the tweets from, I would say, the Western Hemisphere is code mixed. Uh, 
I, I would guess uh, from South Asia, the number would be very high. We already said 17% for India itself. But then uh, what's interesting is if you look at specific cities, the amount of code mixing also varies a lot. So in our study, we found Istanbul has the largest amount of code mixed tweets as high as 13%, whereas some of the cities in the US, let's say Houston or cities in southern United States, where we know that there is a huge number of English-Spanish bilinguals, even then we see around 1% of code mixing. So yes, it's all over the world and it's very, very prevalent. Yeah, and I would like to add here that there is this uh, mistaken belief uh, that people code mix because they are uh, not proficient in one language, you know, people switch to their uh, so-called native language or mother tongue uh, when they're talking in English because they don't know English well enough or they, are, they can't think of the English word when they're talking in English and therefore they switch to, say, Hindi or Spanish or some other language. But that actually is not true. For people to be able to fluently switch between the two languages and fluently code mix and code switch, they actually have to know both the languages really well. Otherwise, it's not mixing or code switching. It is just borrowing, borrowing from one language to another. Right. So familiarity with uh, multiple languages basically gets you code mixing, whereas if you're forced to do it, that's not code mixing. So yeah. code mixing is more intentful and purposeful is what we're saying. Exactly. Okay. Do you see any particular situations or uh, environments in which code mixing seems to be more prevalent than not? Yeah, absolutely. So the more formal scenarios, we definitely tend to stick to one language. And if you think about it, even if you're a monolingual, uh, when you're talking in a formal setting, you kind of have a very structured and have a very different kind of language used than when you're speaking in an informal scenario. But as far as code mixing is concerned, over the years, when linguists actually started looking into this, some of the first papers that are published on code switching are from 1940s. And at that time, it was definitely viewed as an informal use of language. But as our language use over the decades has become, you know, informal has become much more acceptable in various scenarios, we've kind of also started code mixing in a lot of scenarios. So earlier, if you thought about it, you know, if you looked at television, people stuck to just one language uh, at a time. So if it was a Hindi broadcast, it was just Hindi. If it was an English broadcast, it was just English. But now television, radio, they all switch between English and uh, multiple Indian languages when they are broadcasting. So though it is like a much more informal scenario use case, now it's much more prevalent in various scenarios. And to add to that, there's a recent study which says there's all the signs that English mixing of Hindi and English is altogether a new language rather than mixing because there are children who grow up with that as their mother tongue. So they hear English being spoken, or in other words, code mixing between these two languages happening all the time in their family, by their parents and others in the family. And they take that as the language or the native language they learn. So so it's, it's quite interesting, like on one extreme, like Kalika earlier mentioned, uh, there are words which are borrowed. So you just borrow them to fill a gap, which is not there in your language or you can't remember whatever the reason might be. On the other extreme, you have like two languages together fused to give a new language. 
So these are called fused lects, like English. I, I would leave it to you to decide no, whether you would consider it as a language or not. But definitely there are movies which are entirely in English or ads which are in English. You can't say it's either Hindi or English. And in between, of course, there's a spectrum of different levels and, you know, level of integration of mixing between the languages. This is fascinating. You're saying something like English kind of becomes a language that's natural rather than being synthetic? Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. I mean, if you think of a mother tongue as the language that you dream in and then ask yourself, what is a language that you dream in? I dream in English. <laughs> so that's my mother tongue. <laughs> How does code mixing come into play or how does it impact uh, the interaction that people have with computers or computing systems and so on? So, you know, there is again another misconception, which is um, in the beginning, uh, we said that when people code mix, they know both the languages equally well. So the misconception is if I know both Hindi and English and my system let's say a search engine or a speech recognition or a chatbot system understands only one of the languages, let's say English, then I will not use the other language or I will not mix the two languages. But we have seen that this is not true. In fact, long time ago, like when I say long time, I mean, let's say 10 years ago. So when there was no research in computational processing of code mixing, and there were no systems which could handle code mixing. Even at that time, we saw that people issued a lot of queries to Bing, which were code mixed. My favorite example is this one. 2017 May Scorpio Rashika Carrier Kaphal in Hindi. So this is the actual query and everything is typed in the Roman script. Now it has mixed languages, it has mixed scripts and everything. So it is quite uh, fascinating that when people become really familiar with the technology and search engine is an excellent example of such a technology, people really don't think of it as technology. People think of it as a fellow human and they try to interact with the technology as they would have done in a natural circumstances with a fellow human. And that's why even though we design chatbots or ASR, automatic speech recognition systems, thinking of one particular language in mind, but when we deploy them, we see everybody is mixing languages actually, even without realizing that they are mixing languages. So in that sense, all technologies that we build, which are user-facing, or any technology that is actually analyzing data which is user-generated, ideally should have the capability to process code mixed input. So you use the word ideally, which obviously means that it's not necessarily happening uh, maybe too often or as much as it should be. So what are the challenges out here? Initially, the challenge was to accept that this happens. But now, uh, you know, we have crossed that barrier and people do accept that large percentage of this world lives in multilingual communities. And this is a problem. If they are to uh, interact naturally with the so-called natural language uh, systems, then, um, you know, they have to use and process uh, code mixing. But I think the biggest challenge is data because most of our technologies, um, language technologies these days are data hungry. They all are based on machine learning and deep neural network systems. And we require a huge amount of data to train these systems. And it's not 
possible to get data in the same sense for code mixing as we can for monolingual language use. Because if you think about it, the variation in code mixing where you can switch from one language to another is very high. So uh, to be able to get enough examples in your data of all the possible ways in which people can mix two languages is a very, very difficult task. Uh, and this has implications for almost all the systems that we might uh, want to look at, like machine translation, speech recognition, because all of these ultimately rest on language models. And to train these language models, we need uh, this data. So are there any ways to address this challenge of data? So there are several solutions, actually, that we thought of. Uh, one thing is um, asking a fundamental question that, do we really need a new data set for training code mix systems? For instance, imagine a human being who knows two languages, let's say Hindi and English, which uh, three of us know. And imagine that we have never heard anybody mix these two languages in our life before. I, a better example might be English and Sanskrit. I really haven't heard anybody mixing English and Sanskrit. But if somebody does mix these two languages, would I be able to understand? Would I be able to point out, okay, this sounds grammatical and this doesn't? It turns out that intuitively, at least for human beings, that's not a problem. We have an intuitive notion of what is mixing and which patterns of mixing are acceptable. And we really don't need to learn code mix language as a separate language once we know the two languages involved equally well. So this was the starting point for most of our research. So then we thought, okay, how best, instead of creating, you know, uh, data in code mixed language, can we start with monolingual data sets or monolingual models and from there somehow combine them to build code mixed models? Now, there are several approaches that we took and they work to various degrees. But the most interesting one, which uh, I would like to share, is based on some linguistic theories. These linguistic theories says that certain, I mean, given the grammar of the two languages, so if you have the grammar of English and let's say Hindi, and depending on how these grammars are, there are only certain ways in which mixing is acceptable. And uh, to give an example, let's say, uh, I can say I do research on code mixing. Now, uh, for this, uh, I can code mix and say, let's say, I code mixing per research karta hu. Sounds perfectly normal. I do short career on code mixing. Uh, we don't use it that often, probably you wouldn't have heard, but you still might find it quite, you know, grammatical. But if I say, may do code mixing per short career, does it sound natural to you? Now, there's something which doesn't sound right. And linguists have theories on why this doesn't sound right. And starting from those theories, we build models which can take data in two languages uh, parallel data, or if you have a translator, then you can actually translate a sentence. Let's say I do research in code mixing, and you use an English to Hindi translator to translate it into Hindi. Main code mixing, I don't know what the Hindi for code mixing is. Main code mixing par karya karta hu. And then, given these two sentences, this pair of parallel sentences, there is a systematic process in which you can generate all the possible ways in which these two sentences can be mixed in a grammatically valid way when you are saying English. Now, 
we built those models. So the linguistic theories were more theories. So we had to build, we have to flesh them out and build real systems which could generate this. Now, once we have that, now you can imagine that there is no dearth of data. You can take any data in a monolingual, in a single language, any English sentence, and convert it into code mixed Hindi versions. And then you have a lot of data. And whatever you could do for English, you can now, you know, train the same systems on this artificially created data and you can solve those tasks. So that was the basic idea using which we could solve a lot of different problems starting from translation to part of speech tagging to sentiment analysis to parsing. So what you're saying is that uh, given that you need a huge amount of data to build, uh, build out models, uh, but the data is not available, you just create the data yourself. Right. Wow. Yes, based on certain linguistic um, theoretical models, which we have made into computational linguistic theoretical models. Okay, so we've been talking about uh, code mixing as far as uh, textual data is concerned for the large part. Now, are you doing something as far as speech is concerned? Um, yes, uh, speech is slightly more uh, difficult than pure text, primarily because there you have to kind of look at both the acoustic models as well as the language models. But, um, you know, our colleague Sunaina Sitaram, uh, she's been working now for almost three years uh, on um, code mix automatic speech recognition system. And she had actually come up with this really interesting um, Hindi-English ASR system, uh, which mixed between Hindi and English and um, was able to recognize a, a person speaking in uh, mixed Hindi-English speech. Interesting. And uh, where do you see the application of all the work that you guys have done? I mean, I know you've been working on this stuff for a while now, right? If you think about opinion mining is one of the things and you're looking at a lot of user-generated data and the user-generated data is a mix between, say, English and Spanish. Um, and your uh, system can only process and understand English. It can't understand uh, either the Spanish part or the mixed part, like both English and Spanish together. Then the chances are that you will only get a very uh, skewed and most probably incorrect view of what the user is saying or what the user's opinion is. And therefore, any uh, analysis you do on top of the data is going to be incorrect. Um, and uh, I think Monojit has a very good example of that uh, in the work that we did on uh, sentiment and code mixing on Twitter. And he looked at how negative sentiment was expressed on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's actually pretty interesting. So this brings uh, us to the question of actually why people code mix, right? And uh, we said in the beginning that first, it's not random. And second, it has, it seems to have a purpose. So what is that purpose? And of course, there are lots of theories uh, that or observations from linguists starting from humor, sarcasm, or even when you are reporting a speech, so all these have various uh, degrees of code mixing and there are reasons for this. So we thought, okay, there's a lot of code mixing on social media. So we could do a systematic and quantitative study of, you know, what are the different features which make people switch from Hindi to English or vice versa. And we formulated a whole bunch of hypotheses to test based on the current linguistic theory. So our first hypothesis was, you know, people might be switching from 
English to Hindi when they are moving from facts to opinions. Because it's a well-known thing that when you are talking of facts, you can speak it in any language and, and more likely to be in English in Indian context. Whereas uh, when you are expressing something emotional or an opinion, you are more likely to move, you know, switch to your net native language. So people might be more likely switching to Hindi. So we tried to test all these hypotheses and nothing actually was statistically significant. So we really didn't see strong signals for that in the data. But then what we saw a really, really strong signal is when people are expressing negative sentiment, they are more likely, actually nine times more likely to use Hindi than when they are expressing positive sentiment. It seems like English is the preferred language for expressing positive sentiment, whereas Hindi is uh, the preferred language for expressing negative sentiment. And we wrote a paper based on these findings that we might praise even English, but Gali to Hindi mein hi denge. So, you see, if you did only sentiment analysis in one language, let's say English, and try to do trend analysis of some Indian political issue based on that, it's very likely that you, you will get a much rosier picture because if you do only English, people would have said more positive things. And the Hindi... Uh, I, I mean, all the galis or negative things will be actually in Hindi, which you will be missing out. So ideally, you should do a processing of all the languages when you are looking at a multilingual society and analyzing content from there. Yeah, and you know, this actually touches a lot on why people code mix. And uh, that's a very, very vast area of research because people code mix for a lot of reasons. People might code mix because they want to be sarcastic. People might code mix because, uh, you know, they want to express in group. Like the three of us will um, can move to Bengali to kind of, you know, bond and show that we are part of this group that knows Bengali or you meet somebody and they want to keep you at a distance and they will not talk to you in that language or mix. So people do it for humor, people do it for uh, reinforcement. So there's a lot of uh, reasons why people code mix. And if we miss out on all that, it's very hard for us to make any claims, any firm claims on why people are saying what they're saying. It seems like this is an extremely complex area of research, right, which spans not just the computer science or linguistics, but also the like sentiment, opinion, and et cetera, et cetera, a whole lot of stuff going in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, most of the computational linguistics work that you would see mostly draws from linguistics, starting from you know, how grammar works, syntax, and maybe how meaning works, semantics. But code mixing goes much beyond that. So we are talking now of what is called pragmatics and sociolinguistics. So pragmatics should be, you know, given a particular context or situation, how language is used there. And modeling pragmatics is insanely difficult because uh, you not only need to know the language, but you need to know the speakers, the relationship between the speakers, what is the context in which the speakers are situated and speaking, and all this information. So, for instance, I mean, a typical example is if I tell you, could you please pass uh, the water bottle? Now, actually, it's a question, and you could say, yes, I can. But that's not what will satisfy me, right? It, it's actually a request. So, so that's how you know we use language, and uh, what we say is not necessarily what we mean. 
And this intent, understanding this hidden intent is very situational. And in different situations, the same sentence might mean very different things. And code mixing is actually at the boundaries of syntax, semantics, and pragmatics. And social linguistics is the study of how language is used in society and especially how social variables correlate with linguistic variables. So social variables could be somebody's level of education, somebody's age, somebody's gender, you know, where uh, somebody is from, etc. And linguistic variables are, you know, whether it's code mixed or not, at what degree of code mixing, just to give some examples. And, and we do see there are very strong, you know, social factors which determine code mixing behavior. And in fact, that's used a lot in our Hindi movies, Bollywood. So uh, we did a study on Bollywood scripts. So we studied some 37 or 40 Hindi movie scripts which are freely available for research online to see, you know, where does code mixing happen in Bollywood? And what we found is code mixing is employed in a very sophisticated way by the script writers in uh, two particular situations. One is if they want to show a sophisticated urban crowd as opposed to, you know, a rural crowd. So if you look at movies like uh, Dam Laga Ke Haisha and all, uh, which are set in a uh, either in a small town or in a rural scenario or in the past. So usually those movies will have a lot less code mixing than let's say Kapoor and Sons or Pink, which are set in typically in a city and people are all educated urban people. So just to show that code mixing is used heavily in this kind of movies. And Another case where in Bollywood they use a lot of code mixing, in fact, accented code mixing, is when uh, you want to show that somebody has been to foreign, as we would say, so <laughs> abroad, and, <laughs> and would come back to India and interact with poor country cousins. So it's, it's used a lot in different ways in the movies. And, and that's the sociolinguistic bit which is kicking in. And, uh, you know, to add to that, uh, what we had touched upon earlier, how this usage has kind of changed over time. Um, in the earlier Bollywood movies, this mixing was much less. And not only that, the use of English was mostly used to denote who is the villain in the movie. The evil guys were usually the ones who spoke, um, you know, if you look at 1970s or 60s movies, it's al always the smugglers, the kingpins of the mafia who spoke a lot of English and mixed English into Hindi. So obviously that kind of um, change has happened over the years, even in Bollywood movies. <laughs> I would never have thought about all these things. <laughs> Villains speaking English, okay, in Bollywood. <laughs> Where do you see this area of research going uh, in the future? Do you guys have anything in particular in mind or you're just exploring to see? So I think one of the things that we have been looking at a lot is that how, you know, when AI interacts with users, uh, with humans, so this human AI interaction uh, scenario, where does code mixing fit in? Because uh, there's one aspect that if the user is mixing and you understand, but does the bot 
or the AI agent also have to mix or not? And if the AI agent has to mix, then where and when should it mix? So that's something that we have been looking at. And that is something that we think is going to uh, play an important role in uh, human AI interaction going forward. We've studied this in some detail and it's it's actually very interesting. So um, people have a whole variety of attitudes towards not only code mixing, but also towards AI bots interacting with them. And this kind of reflects on what they feel about uh, a bot that will code mix um, and talk to them in a mixture of language, irrespective of whether they themselves code mix or not. And our study has shown uh, some people would look at a bot that code mixes as cool and in a very positive way, but some people would look at it very negatively. And the reason for that is some people might think that code mixing itself is like, you know, not a, the right thing to do. It's not a pure language. Uh, other people would think that uh, it's a bot. You know, it should talk in um, a very proper way. Um, so it should only talk in English or only talk in Hindi and it shouldn't be mixing language. And uh, a certain set of people are kind of uh, freaked out by the fact that the AI is trying to sound more human-like when it mixes. So there is a wide range of um, attitudes that people have towards a code mixing AI agent. How can we kind of tackle that? How do we make a bot then that code mixes or doesn't code mix and it pleases the entire crowd, right? Is there such a thing as pleasing the entire crowd? <laughs> so we have ideas about that, of how to go about trying to at least please the um, crowd. Yeah, basically, you have to adapt to the speaker. Essentially, the way we please the crowd is through accommodation. So when we talk to uh, somebody who is primarily speaking in English, I will try to reciprocate in English. Whereas if somebody is speaking in Hindi, I will try to speak in Hindi if I want to please that person. Of course, if I don't, then I will use the other language to show the social distance. And uh, this is one of the ways which we call the linguistic accommodation theory. But there are many other ways or in general, there are various style components that we incorporate in our day-to-day -day conversation, mostly unknowingly, based on whether we want to please the other person or not. So call it psychofancy or whatever, but we want to build bots which kind of model that kind of, uh, you know, an attitude. And if we are successful, then that bot will be a world pleaser. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it is so much to do with psychofancy as, um, you know, um, human beings actually have to cooperate and that in a sense hardwired uh, to a certain extent into us by now uh, for evolutionary reasons we do need to cooperate and to be able to have a successful interaction uh, we have to cooperate right and one of the ways we do this is by trying to be more like the person that we're talking to and both parties kind of converge to a middle ground and that's what accommodation is all about. <laughs> so, Kalika and Monajit, uh, this has been a very interesting uh, conversation. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the listeners? 
I hope that people get an idea through, uh, you know, our work on code mixing that human communication is quite intricate. There are many, many factors that come into play when uh, human beings communicate with each other, right? So there can be social contexts, there can be pragmatic contexts, and of course, the structure of the language uh, and the meaning that you're trying to convey, all of it plays a big role in how we communicate. And by studying code mixing in this context, we are able to hopefully grapple with uh, a lot of these factors, which, uh, you know, in a very general human-human communication become too big to handle all at once. Yeah, so language is an extremely complicated and multidimensional thing. So code mixing is just one of the dimensions where we are talking of switching between languages. But then even within languages or their words, there are structural differences between languages. Sometimes, you know, you can use features of another language into your own language. It won't be called code mixing, but essentially you are mixing. So for instance, accents, when you talk your own, you know, native language in, let's say, another kind of an accent borrowed from another language. In Indian English, we use things like little, little, those little, little things that we say. Now, little, little is not really an English construct. This is a Hindi or Indian language construct, which we are borrowing into English. So all this studying at once would be extremely difficult. But on the other hand, code mixing does provide us with a handle into this problem of computational modeling of pragmatics and sociolinguistics and all those concepts and how we can then not only model these things for sake of modeling, but there are concrete use cases and not only use cases, there are needs like users are already code mixing to technology. So technology should respond back by understanding code mixing and if possible, even generating code mixing. So uh, through this entire research, we are trying to close this loop of how linguistic theories can be used to build computational models. And these computational models can be then taken to users and in all its complications and complexities. And then we understand and learn from the user technology interaction and feed back to our model. So th this, this entire cycle of theory to application to deployment is what we would like to do or you know, get deeper insight into in the context of natural language processing. And I'm looking forward to doing another podcast once you guys have gone down the road with the research on that. Kalika and Monojit, uh, this was a very interesting conversation. Shukriya. Aapka bhi bahut bahut thank you. It was great fun. Thank you, Sridhar. Khub enjoy kollami conversation ta tumashathe. Ami akta kotha I want to tell to the audience, never feel apologetic for any you know, any time when you code mix. This is all very natural and don't think you are talking an impure language. Thank you. Perfect. 